probably episode 122, but I can't be sure anymore. Operation Windmill. In 1947 and the USA, the Central Intelligence Agency collated the geographic information available to date and applied the flight tracks of Operations High Jump, the USASA, and the Bird Antarctic Expeditions 1 and 2 to draw up a detailed map of Antarctica with those areas sighted from the aircraft and those areas of coast demonstrably first observed by United States mariners as a template for a potential United States claim in Antarctica. With most of the coast discovered by mariners of other nations, the map focused on the swathes of hinterland and interior first flown over and observed by the US aviators. A sector model approach would have ceded too much territory to other nations whose mariners kept better records than 19th century American sealers, so this flight track biased approach yielded a better result in terms of square mileage the US could lay claim to, but with so little of the coast to its name, the claimant maps left a lot to be desired from a US perspective, no matter which track the cartographers took. Regardless, the map the CIA produced lacked geographical veracity, as the flight tracks making up the bulk of the surface area shaded to the United States' advantage lacked ground control points. The same problem the US geographers criticised the maps arising from Rich's work in the South on the behalf of Nazi Germany over riddled their own best offering. Something must be done. The second Antarctic Developments Project, Task Force 39 in US naval terminology, and Operation Windmill in less formal company, the name used by the press but never recognised by the Navy itself, comprised a two-ship return to the Wilkes coast to ground truth the aerial photography carried out by Operation High Jump in the preceding Austral summer. The helicopters sent south as part of Operation High Jump the previous year mostly served as aerial support for maritime operations, scouting a path through the pack, occasionally moving personnel from one ship to another, and providing plane guard for the aircraft taking off from the Pine Island. Their assigned duties and several crashes among their number prevented helicopters serving as ship-to-shore transport, but the naval personnel paying attention realised how seriously handy such aerial scows might be for approaching ice-locked landmasses. The organising committee, largely carrying over directly from Operation High Jump, placed Commander Gerald L. Ketchum, who commanded the USS Burton Island in the final stages of High Jump, in charge of Task Force 39, just five weeks before Operation Windmill kicked off, charging the project with pushing as close to the Antarctic landmass as possible, then bridging any final miles with helicopters, and making with the theodolites to add ground control points to the previous Austral Summer's aerial photography. 30 useful landing sites were nominated from existing charts and maps to serve as these aerial survey tie-in points. Ketchum received the Burton Island as his flagship, commanded by Captain Edwin A. MacDonald, and the USS Adisto, an icebreaker built to the same design and under the command of Edward C. Folger, as the mutual support vessel. Other than Ketchum, the only officer taking part to hold Antarctic experience was United States Marine Corps Captain Vernon Boyd, veteran of Little America II, the USASA, and Operation High Jump. 
Between them, the ships fielded 500 Naval, United States Marine Corps and Army personnel. The name Operation Windmill is generally accepted as referring to the extensive use of helicopters to place surveyors ashore during the expedition, and the icebreakers carried three of them. Each ship fielded a Sikorsky H-03-S1 and the Burton Island and carried a Bell HTL-1, which looks distinct from, but is mechanically identical, to the Bell 47s most people know from the opening sequence of the TV series MASH, and which Australians of a certain vintage will also recognise as the aerial steed of flight ranger Jerry King in Skippy, the Bush Kangaroo, the local version of Flipper. The Edisto carried a Grumman Duck, the waddling trifibious biplane offering range and speed beyond those the helicopters could muster, and thereby offering a greater scope for scouting flights. Each ship also carried two weasel-tracked vehicles, each weasel having a one-ton sled for towing equipment and stores. The United States Marine Corps personnel sailed primarily to make any necessary landings using the weasels. While the primary mission of Task Force 39 focused on getting ashore to provide geodetic points of reference for the aerial photography carried out during Operation High Jump, Task Force 39 also received orders to examine materials and stores left behind at Little America 4 to see how everything held up in its year-long abandonment, and to further the previous expedition's training of naval personnel in high-latitudes operations, and to examine sites on the Antarctic coast that might serve as sound footings on which to establish more permanent American presences, with a particular interest in the area of the Bunga Hills. The task force incorporated scientific programs covering electromagnetism, hydrography, oceanography, geology and meteorology, with most scientific and associated technical personnel arising from within naval ranks. Only 10 civilian scientists received berths during this expedition. With Space Limited, the United States Army only received eight berths for observers, and no foreign observers received a slot, as was the case in high jump operations the previous Austral summer. The two ships rendezvoused in American Samoa on December the 3rd, and the officers held a planning conference to determine a division of labour between the two ships, and to plot a nominal order of operations, allowing the ships to work independently while remaining close enough to offer assistance should either become trapped in sea ice. Where both ships held on to geodesy, meteorology and photographic programs, all biological work fell to the Edisto, while geological projects fell to the Burton Island. The ship sailed for Scott Island on the 5th of December, maintaining tracks 20 nautical miles apart to maximise bathymetric coverage with the fathometric plotters. Pack ice once more prevented anyone putting ashore on Scott Island, and the ships headed west, skirting the pack en route to the Shackleton Ice Shelf. On Christmas Eve, they encountered the British whaling factory vessel Southern Harvest and its catches, before turning south and taking turns in breaking a path through the pack, thereby keeping fuel consumption evenly distributed between the two ships. The helicopters went to work scouting for open water on the 25th, finding and directing the ships to large leads 12 miles further south. On gaining open water, 
the ships parted company, heading to make landfall at their predetermined ground control sites. The Adisto's helicopter landed a five-person field party at the foot of a glacial Piedmont, 25 miles west of Haswell Island, on December 28th. A second five-person party went ashore by helicopter, 12 miles east of Gaussberg Bay. A blizzard and cloud prevented their taking astronomical angles for three days, the parties using this time to establish magnetic measurement arrays and to lay out baselines for surveying triangulations. Clear skies on New Year's Day allowed them to gain their astrofixes. The Gaussberg Bay Party incorporating the Gaussberg itself, 50 miles distant, into their survey triangulations. The Burton Island struggled to approach its ground control sites. When weather cleared sufficient for their flight, the helicopters scouted usable leads, but these led to further dead ends comprising sea ice too thick for the ship to break. 17 miles out from Haswell Island, the Marines lowered the two weasel vehicles onto the sea ice, and Vernon Boyd led the field parties ashore. The field personnel followed the same routine recounted for those sent out by the Edisto, returning to their ship by a combination of helicopter flights and weasel traverse. One of the weasels broke down en route back to the ship, and its occupants abandoned it to ride the rest of the way in the alternate vehicle, though Marine Corps mechanics later repaired and retrieved the broken machine. The Burton Island couldn't locate its second nominated site near the western edge of the Shackleton Glacier, and carried on to the Gillies Islands, three rock pinnacles protruding through the glacial surface. The Sikorsky helicopter that flew the field party to these peaks bent the frame of its float landing gear on landing. While no one was injured, the helicopter couldn't fly without repairs, and with the Burton Island's Bell helicopter undergoing maintenance, and the field site inaccessible to the weasels due to the steep sides of the glacier tongue, Captain MacDonald called on the Adisto for assistance. With all but two of the men put ashore at the Adisto's first site back on board, Captain Folger sent the Adisto's Sikorsky off to the Burton Island, only finding out when the pilot, Lieutenant Lloyd Tracy, went out of radio range that the ships lay 80 and not 40 miles apart, a mistake arising from adverse radio reception and a range that might tax the helicopter's fuel reserves to their limit. Lieutenant Tracy made the distance, refuelled aboard the Burton Island and carried flight maintenance personnel ashore to repair the damaged machine, repairs running to completion in time to coincide with the last of the survey measurements the field party enjoying perfect weather conditions while atop the highest of the three peaks comprising the island group. With everything tickety-boo, Lieutenant Tracy returned to the Adisto personnel still ashore and ferried them to the next field site, while the Burton Island field party returned to their ship just over a day after they left it. In their absence, a second party investigated a rock near the ship's anchorage, initially called Burton Island Rock, but later taking the name Bigelow Island after one of the United States Marine Corps Sergeant tractor drivers, George Bigelow. This shore party took astrofixes and investigated the island's geology with the assistance of underwater demolitions experts, though whether they set their explosives above or below the water isn't mentioned in my texts. This party returned to the ship on the 5th of January after two days pinned in place by snowstorms. 
The ships reunited on the 6th and steamed east, turning south again on the 8th, heading for the Bunga Hills. Ice conditions in this region forced a large fuel expenditure, both icebreakers taking turns breaking ice to push the ships close to the sites of greatest interest in the entire expedition. Fuel concerns later cut the expedition short, but the Bunga Hills were suspected to hold the best scope for permanent occupation sites, and Commander Ketchum paid the sticker price of reaching them. Commander Folger deemed the 28 miles of constant icebreaking required to reach open water 40 miles from the Bunga Hills, quote, some of the worst slugging type of icebreaking we've ever encountered with Arctic or Antarctic, end quote. The Burton Island and the Adisto lay in separate Polenias, with the Adisto lying 50 miles close to the landfall target. The Burton Island sent its helicopters to join its sister ship, the Grumman Duck flying a sheepdog circuit to help maintain radio relay contact between the helicopters and the ships, and to provide emergency fuel supplies if someone ran out en route. The Marines used their weasels to cache fuel drums halfway between the Adisto and the Bunga Hills, and the field party ferrying commenced, survey teams from both ships going ashore at various points in the Bungas. On the 12th of January, the Bell helicopter landed heavily in whiteout conditions, the airframe written off, but the occupants unharmed. The geologists examining the area concluded that the Bunga Hills' ice-free nature stemmed from several factors. While the area showed obvious signs of past glacial cover, the present glaciers, inland of the hills, drained around the area. Arid ambient atmospheric conditions prevented snow deposition by precipitation, and the low albedo of the exposed rock melted what snow blew in from elsewhere. The rock proved a mixture of gneisses, schists and quartzes, with granite and basalt dikes, and large numbers of glacially transported erratics. A real geological grab bag. Winds blew much of the sea ice out, making egress from the area far easier than the ingress, and Commander Ketchum decided to head for Vincennes Bay. On the 19th, the Edisto put a party ashore on a small island off the Knox coast, the surveyors and physicists completing their work in just over a day. The Burton Island worked in close to its destination, an archipelago of 50 or so low-lying islands, now known as the Windmill Islands. With good weather and only 800 yards between ship and shore, the entire crew received permission to head out in the boats and put their boots on Antarctic soil, and the entire crew took advantage of this largesse, albeit in a coordinated rotor. Descriptions of this outing are indistinguishable from accounts of zodiac cruising and shore landings in the tourism context, the naval personnel delighting in the bird life, seals and whales their visit afforded them the opportunity to see. The underwater demolitions teams quarried rock for the geologists, an examination of the depth of weathering in the dark grey granite chunks their explosives yielded, indicated the site as exposed for a geologically long time since their last glacial inundation. The Grumman Duck flew a photographic survey flight between the two Vincennes Bay ground control sites. Based on this visit, the Windmill Islands later served as the site for Wilkes Station, 
and the subsequent Casey Station, but those are tales for the International Geophysical Year and after. The ships departed Vincennes Bay and tracked east, passing to the north of the Balleny Islands and encountering the Japanese whaler Hashidate Maru and its attendant vessels on the 25th of January before turning south and making their way into the Ross Sea on the 26th. With little sea ice present, they reached McMurdo Sound in a day's steaming. Helicopters and Greenland cruisers, which I'm assuming are motor launchers carried aboard the wind-class icebreakers, ferried crew members ashore for science and surveying, but also to tour the historic sites along the shores of Ross Island, windmill personnel making stops at Cape Royds, Cape Evans and Hut Point to visit the heroic era huts. Moving on to the Bay of Wales, the ships moored up against the barrier edge on the 31st of January, putting Vernon Boyd and his weasel teams ashore to lead an examination of the weather and frost effects on materials and structures left at Little Americas 3 and 4 over the course of the subsequent five days. The abandoned tents centre poles, usually still capped by the ventilator peaks, still stood, their rope work in place, but the canvas skinning torn to shreds and blown away. Tracked and wheeled vehicles showed above the drift surface as exhaust stacks, and the R4Ds appeared only as noses, cockpits, wingtips and vertical stabilisers. Any remaining control surfaces showed as skeletal remnants, robbed of their fabric skinning. The various iterations of Little America lay increasingly deep in the barrier ice, a phenomenon I should have addressed in earlier episodes. Ice barriers float on seawater, which is, by definition, warmer than the ice lying atop it. The water is insulated from further thermal loss by the thick ice and, unlike water lying under sea ice, doesn't often freeze and add to the overlying ice thickness. More often, the lowest layers of glacial ice slowly melt, the process speeding up with increasing distance from the cold-soaked rocky shore. Those structures built at height x metres above sea level on an ice barrier will gradually sink below x metres above sea level as the barrier presses out from the continent and the lowest ice layers melt. The ice barrier can remain x metres thick though, because of snow deposition, whether by precipitation or from snow arriving horizontally from elsewhere, the upshot making buildings and abandoned equipment appear to sink into the barrier. The phenomenon hasn't been particularly important to the expeditions and bases recounted to date, but will become increasingly pertinent as more nations build stations on barrier ice. Even glaciers over land gradually lose material from below as the lowest layers of their substance trickle away due to pressure-mediated melting during their journey to the coast, but the process of loss from below is faster for ice already at sea. The Adisto led the egress from the Ross Sea, traversing previously impenetrable pack ice to the north of Cape Colbeck the first time ships took this path. The icebreakers attempted to reach Mount Sipel and the Thurston Peninsula, but after 100 miles of icebreaking, reversed their course on the 14th of February, the coastal pack too dense to reach their goal. The ships carried on to Peter I Island and from there made their way into Marguerite Bay and the relief of the port of Beaumont, 
and you'll hear the rest of that story in coming episodes. The weasel vehicles and their sleds didn't receive much use. With the helicopters far faster to prepare for an excursion and far faster at getting people where they needed to be, the Marines spent most of the expedition on secondary duties, while their vehicles remained on standby for emergency extractions should anything go wrong with the helicopter flights. Over its 69 days on task, the Operation Windmill ships traversed almost half the Antarctic circumference, established 17 geodetic reference stations, and generated the first bathymetric data for a large swathe of the waters they passed through. Ornithologist Malcolm Davis collected emperor penguins during his time aboard the Edisto, and they survived as long as six years in the National Zoological Park, setting a record for longevity for the birds in captivity. The many recommendations Commander Ketchum put forth in his final reports on Operation Windmill included that the Grumman J2F duck should be left at home as it couldn't operate when the ships were in the pack when it was most needed and because its limited range prevented it reaching desired destinations from outside the pack, that more powerful helicopters with longer range be requisitioned to replace both the Grumman duck and the short-range Sikorsky and Bell models that couldn't fly far or for long and that task force commanders and their underling officers should receive at least three months lead time before anyone expected them to coordinate high latitudes projects of Windmill's nature, jibing against the rush with which his superiors threw him southward. Operations High Jump and Windmill resulted in the publication of a manual and key regional photo interpretation series Antarctica, for standardising photogrammetric data acquisition in future projects, and generated two hydrographic charts of previously uncharted or poorly charted waters. The Operation Windmill ground control sites did tie in a lot of the trimetrigon photography of Operation High Jump, but as a lot of that photographic cover comprised images from only the vertical camera, but as a lot of that photographic coverage comprised images from only the vertical camera, a lot of the material never received close examination, let alone the ortho-rectification necessary to begin deriving cartographic data from the photographs. Once more, the State Department kept the raw material in its back pocket in case it ever became useful, and other than imagery concerning particular small areas of interest to researchers, it never did. High-altitude aerial photography, and then satellites, provided greater coverage with greater consistency and granularity, so I doubt anyone will ever get around to processing more of the Operation High Jump material than's useful for historical comparisons of glacial termini. New radio navigational aids, such as Loran, long-range navigation, would gradually make ground-truthing parties superfluous to future aerial survey efforts. Loran hyperbolic radio navigation arose as a low-frequency, long-range development of the G radio direction navigation system employed to help aircraft departing Airstrip 1 find their targets in Nazi-occupied Europe. The US Navy employed valve-operated, cathode-ray-tube-interpreted Loran systems in the late stages of the war in the Pacific and, being militarily useful, the system received a lot of research and development funding. By placing the transmitters at known sites, a ship or aircraft could triangulate a position 
using a system of circuits solving for X in hardwired trigonometric calculations using information carried as pulsed radio signals as the variables. While the early sets look huge and fragile to a modern eye, they represent the biggest leap forward in navigation since Harrison's chronometers. Finronny kept himself abreast of the new mode and discussed its potential uses with Samuel Boggs as a potential path toward photographing the entire Antarctic continent from high altitudes with a precision matching that achieved to date with ground parties processing far less sweeping aerial coverage than the new methods and mechanisms promised. Boggs' role on the Defence Department's Research and Development Board, a precursor to the National Science Foundation, made him acutely aware of the national utility of Finn Ronnie's technologically inspired vision for Antarctica, and kept his ideas in mind as the National Science Foundation, brought into being in 1950 by President Truman's signing of 42 USC 16, whatever that jib-jab means, as the Korean War ran its course and the world headed toward the International Geophysical Year, much more of which are not. For me, the single most exciting aspect of Operation Windmill was the first instance of helicopters serving in the most important role they still fulfil in Antarctica, moving people about when the sea ice conditions preclude reaching the shore they aimed for by maritime means. They're still used for scouting in uncertain sea ice conditions, though satellites are doing more of that than helicopters now, and they move people from place to place once they're ashore. But that's something vehicles, dog teams and even foot slogging can achieve, and the British Antarctic Service, by eschewing helicopter operations, demonstrates it's possible to work onshore without helicopters year after year. Getting people ashore who otherwise remain stuck on their ship is the role in which helicopters offer the only reliable option. While they're not always necessary, it's better to have them and not need them than the other way around, unless you're an expedition accountant, in which case the expense of leasing the machine and paying the pilot and service team might warrant some justification. A mooted high jump 2, slated for the austral summer of 1948-49, never came about. Finn Ronnie and Admiral Cruzen remained strong advocates for Antarctica as a military training ground, but most other military leaders saw it as a distraction from more pressing matters at lower latitudes. What could have been Richard Byrd's last hurrah at the head of a large Antarctic operation, albeit in a figurehead role, never came about. Thinking about the matter, it might be that he felt comfortable taking on figurehead roles such as that afforded him in Operation High Jump, because that was the role he took for himself in every project he ever started and everything he ever accepted credit for, human paperweight that he was. At the time, Harry Floodbird feuded with President Truman over the fair deal policies and the desegregation of the federal workforce and public schools, bigot that he was. Richard Bird also a bigot, sided with the US Navy's anti-integration stance, but ended up on the wrong side of history yet again. The Navy rode a path toward integration no matter how much the dinosaurs roared, and Byrd wasted a lot of time in, I'm not a racist but, regard defence of unwarranted white privilege. Paul Seipel blamed presidential antipathy arising from the feud with Richard Byrd's brother as a key element in the shit-canning of plans for High Jump 2, 
but I think that's likely a gilded lily narrative that served his former mentor and hero well. Bird wasn't ever as high up in naval planning as he liked to project. It might be true that bad blood between Truman and brother Harry kept Richard Bird from receiving government support for his own projects to fly from pole to pole, a scheme Bird spoke of in 1944, or from New Zealand to Chile via Antarctica, a post-war fancy, but the Navy got pretty much whatever the naval heads asked for at that point in the Cold War. Bird didn't hold the sway to promote or prevent a project at the Operation High Jump 2 scale, even at the height of his influence. Even the USASA, the expedition he tried so hard to distance himself from when it wasn't running smoothly or kicking goals, paled into insignificance when compared to the resources the Navy threw at Antarctica in Operation Windmill, 500 personnel on full pay plus hardship allowances on two brand new ships with three state-of-the-art helicopters, let alone in Operation High Jump, 4,000 personnel, 11 ships, 12 large aircraft and change. Bird just never held that strong a hand. When Defence Secretary Louis Johnson ordered Navy Secretary Dan Kimball to pull the Task Force 66 Operation High Jump 2 pin in August 1948, Richard Bird told that top naval civilian exactly what he thought of the decision. Mouthing off in this manner led to his name becoming mud in the power broker circles. They gave him a berth and shiny title in Operation High Jump. Isn't Baby ever happy? Apparently not. 